you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, 
and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, good day, City on a Hill. Wonderful to be with you. My name is Guy, and as always, it's my joy and privilege to serve as the senior pastor of this church. Uh, I love you, and I'm so thankful that you would join us. I'm thankful for your support, for your care, for your prayers, and thankful that we can be together in this moment. I heard that last weekend for our very first City on a Hill digital service, we got to join together with men and women from 107 different cities across 61 different countries. That is incredible. Uh, We joined and connected with 3,771 devices and another 900 people tuned in for City Kids TV, all of which to say that by God's grace, we had more people last Sunday than any other Sunday in the history of our church. And we say praise God because City on a Hill has never been about bricks and mortar, but about people gathering together around the beauty, the truth, and the relevance of Jesus. And I want to say to you that wherever you are, uh, whatever you are going through right now, that God knows you, God cares for you, God loves you, God is with you, and in Christ, God is for you. Uh, Today, we are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. 
And as I was reading through this text, I was reminded of a time that I was walking through the city streets. I had a latte in one hand, an iPhone in the other, and I'm walking briskly because I'm running late for a meeting. And as I approach an intersection, I look to the right to see if there's any uh, cars coming my way, and there's not, and so I step onto the road. But here's the problem. At this moment, I'm not in Australia, (laughs) I'm in Canada. And I don't know if you know this, but in Canada, the cars don't come from the right, they come from the left. And so immediately, I flick my head, and what do I see? This huge, large, black SUV just meters away from mowing me down. My heart stops, Uh, I hear the the wheels uh, screeching and the horn blasting as everything in my world began to stop. Thankfully, uh, the driver managed to swerve out of the way and I was able to jump back. But for a split second, man, it was over. I was done. And I can tell you this, in that moment, in that moment, I cared very little about my latte. I cared very little about the meeting I was running late for. I cared very little about what some random person was saying on Facebook about their cat. I cared about my life. I cared about our church. I I cared about my friends and I cared about my family. In fact, as it turns out, just that morning, I had received a letter from uh, my daughter, Summer, who was on the other side of the world in Australia. She says, miss you lots. I can't wait till you are home. Lots of love, Summer. Smiley face. P.S. Can you please pray for me? Because I keep thinking you're going to die and I will be an orphan. Sad face. And here I am on this street feeling the distance, feeling the separation and considering how something as trivial as looking right instead of looking left could have been the difference between my life and my death. Have you ever had a moment like that? Ever experienced something that reminded you of the futile and and fleeting nature of life itself? We rarely talk about death these days because as adults, we're, we're supposed to have grown out of these childish fears. But, but deep down, you and I know it's there. Deep down, we can feel its presence. And isn't that particularly so in a moment that we're in right now? Right now, we're living in these unprecedented times. As we scroll our news feeds, we read stories of hospitals being overrun and uh, bodies lying out on the street. In our own country, we see these streams of people lining up at Centrelink and cafes and businesses and restaurants shutting their doors. Uh, we head to the supermarket. And we see empty shelves and that emptiness reminds us of the emptiness that we're feeling in this season of isolation and separation. There's perhaps never been in my life, in our lifetime, a moment where the shadow of death has loomed so large. And so where do you look in a time like this? Where does our help come from. If you have a Bible handy, let me encourage you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 19. 
in today's vision, uh, I want us to see three visions, three pictures, three images. First, the rider on a white horse. Chapter 19, verse 11, John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful. And true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. In the ancient world, if a king was riding on a donkey, he came to herald peace. But if a king was seen on a horse, it was because he was readying himself for war. And do you see his eyes? His eyes are like a flame of fire. They say that eyes are the window of the soul. And here, as we look into the eyes of Christ, we, we see his power, we see his purity, we see his perfection, and we see his passion. And what do you make of the many diadems that are upon his head? These are the, the crowns, the many crowns that are on the head of Jesus. Uh, in the ancient world, it was actually not uncommon for a king to wear many crowns upon his head to signify the many different countries that he ruled upon. And so as we see the many crowns of Christ, you and I, we're reminded that, that Jesus is sovereign and he is supreme over all. Sovereign over all nations, sovereign over all kingdoms, sovereign over what happens on heaven and what happens on earth. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there's not, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Of course, the crowns of Christ not only declare his sovereignty, but also his victory. In the same way that a prized fighter might lift up the gold belt in celebration, so the crown that is upon the head of Jesus is a testimony to his victory. And do you know who is included in that victory? You are. You who are in Christ, who've been rescued from the clutches of death, are a crown to his victory, like a pure and precious diamond that shines. So you are a chosen and special and treasured possession to Christ that reflects and shines his glory and grace. Look then with me to verse 13. John says, He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is interesting. Why is there blood? Why is there blood on his robe before the battle has even begun? I mean, here he is, readying himself for war, and John says, There is a robe dipped in blood. Why? Why is there blood on his robe before the battle has even begun? I'll tell you why. Because the blood on his robe is his blood. This is the blood that was poured out at Calvary. This is the blood that was poured out that disarmed the evil one. This is the blood that cleanses you and I from all unrighteousness, and unites us to Christ. 
You know that movie, Stand By Me? You remember that scene where the, the young boys are huddled together and they decide to make a pack to, 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 you know, to signify that they're one, that they're united, that they'll always be together. You remember what they do? They pierce their, their hands and their fingers and they share that blood. Blood is a sign of their covenant, of their union, that they'll stand by each other no matter what. Is that not what Jesus had in mind when he took a cup of wine and said to his disciples, drink this? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Look then to verse 15. John says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Throughout the Bible, the sword is a symbol um, representing the word of God. Sharp, living, active, personal and powerful. When God created the world, he spoke it into existence. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we see Jesus using his word to to set people free. When there's a man uh, who was possessed by an evil spirit and living in the land of the dead, Jesus says to the demons, be gone. And it is gone. When his disciples are feeling the waves crashing against his boat and are freaking out in fear. Jesus stares down the storm and says, hush, be still. And it is. And when Lazarus has fallen ill, is sick and dies, and he comes to Lazarus and Lazarus has been dead four days, so dead that Mary, when she opens the tomb, says, he stinketh. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And immediately Lazarus came out. Isn't that incredible? Isn't this the power of Jesus that you and I, that we so desperately need right now? You know, these past few days, I have found within me my soul stirring with so many different emotions. I was chatting with the neighbor next door, just seeing him out the front, sweeping the path with his head down and just talking with him about the difficulty of it all. Here he is, a guy who started his own business that's going well. And yet now, because of everything that's going on, it's, it's done. He's laying off staff and he's closing the doors. And the difficulty he has when he comes to that purpose and what that means for his home, what that means for his wife and his child. It's as if there's this sadness sweeping across our world. And I feel the uncertainty of it all. I feel the sorrow impacting us on almost every single level. It's not only that things are changing. It's that we are losing so much of what we love. What does our world need in this hour? What do you and I need in this season of crisis? We need 
the rider on the white horse, the one with the robe dripped in blood, with the eyes of flaming fire, with the sword of truth coming from his mouth, the one who not only knows the brokenness of this world, but will stare it down and and bring it to its knees. And this leads to our second image, the ancient serpent. Have a look with me to chapter 20, verse 1. John says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now, we first meet this ancient serpent in the opening pages of the Bible. He comes to test and tempt our first mother and our first father. And the great tragedy of that hour is that instead of trusting God and rejecting the serpent, Adam and Eve swallow a lie. And in eating the fruit... They not only bring judgment upon themselves, but a brokenness upon our world. Uh, It's not that we can't enjoy God's creation anymore, but the creation is now uh, held in a curse. It's frustrated. Uh, It's bound. It's not that we can't love anymore, but so often our relationships are are marked by jealousy and insecurity and malice and, and pride. And it's not that we can't worship God. It's just that now in sin, we are bent on worshiping ourselves. In Revelation, the devil is a real enemy, inflicting real misery and madness upon our world. But Please note an important detail. Throughout this vision, uh, as we draw closer to the end, the curtain drops on the serpent and we see that his days are numbered. Right? Verse 2, check it out. The serpent, the ancient serpent, is seized and bound. In verse 3, the serpent is thrown into a pit that is shut and sealed. And how long is he locked in this prison? John says the serpent is bound for a thousand years. Now, it is important to acknowledge at this point that a lot of ink has been spilled on these few verses. In fact, there's entire systems of theology built around the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, broadly speaking, there are three schools of interpretation. There are Christians who hold to a pre-millennium view. And in a pre-millennium view, it's taught that Jesus returns before the thousand years. And at which point he strips Satan of his power, sets up his kingdom of saints, who then rule on earth with Jesus for a thousand years. And at the end of this period, Satan is released. Uh, He tries once more to destroy the world, but he himself is destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this was actually advocated by ancient writers like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. And in modern times, pastors like uh, John Piper, John Woolvard, and John MacArthur. Basically, if your name is John, you're probably pre-mill, right? So that's that view. Then there are other Christians who hold to a post-millennium view. Uh, 
They believe that Jesus' return doesn't happen before the thousand-year reign, but guess the after. That's why they're post-millennium. And so this view holds that the thousand-year reign period will be a time on earth unlike any other time in history in which the gospel wins the day. In other words, as we draw to the end of all things, we're going to see a society experience a golden age of revival and renewal where the world is one for Jesus. And third, there are other Christians who hold an amillennium view. Now, the A in Greek functions like un or, uh, or, or, uh, or not, un or not. It's a bit like saying, I love you, not, right? And so those holding an A millennium view simply believe that there is no millennium. Or to be more precise, they believe that the thousand-year reign, like much in Revelation, is symbolic. That is to say, there's no literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth, but that Christ is always ruling now from heaven alongside his saints. And therefore, the point of the thousand-year reign is to show that Satan is currently bound in the sense that he can't prevent anyone proclaiming or receiving the good news of the gospel. You say, Guy, well, which is it? Which of these three views is right? Well, I want you to know that across City on a Hill, across our church, there are actually a range of different views here. And uh, in fact, I've invited all of our local lead pastors this week to, to post a podcast or a video sermon or a blog uh, outlining uh, this text in a little bit more detail, as well as articulating their own view. Uh, as a team, we all agree that this is an open-handed Issue. And we also agree that across those three views, there's historical, biblical, and scriptural weight. And while there are differing views, there is one insight from this vision in Revelation that all Christians must know and believe. You want to know what that is? Two words Jesus wins. Right? Doesn't matter if you're pre mill, Jesus wins. Are you post mill? Jesus wins. A mill? Guess what? Jesus wins again. All Bible-believing Christians believe in the supremacy of Christ and his triumph over the evil one. Check it out. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you see that? In the last days, the serpent will come out once more and try to deceive many. And he will assemble all that he can, all his ammunition, all of his followers to wage war against heaven. But the question is, will he win? The answer, no. Jesus wins. Jesus is the one who reigns. Jesus is the one who rules. The ancient serpent together with the false prophet and the beast and all who worship the beast are what? Thrown into the lake of fire where they remain forever. 10 days ago, 10 days ago, Vanessa's younger brother 
His name's Cameron, returned from a trip to the US. Uh, He'd gone to LA for work uh, and to catch up with some friends. And yet on his way home, he had a less than ideal flight. He posted this uh, on Facebook. He says this, Halfway through our flight to Melbourne, I witnessed an elderly lady pass away two rows in front of me, I presume from cardiac arrest. The crew did an admirable job, but it was a jarring and numbing experience. The young lady sitting next to me called the attendant as she said she felt sick. She was then moved from her seat and I didn't see her again. When we landed, the pilot announced that a passenger was sick and required quarantine, so we would be delayed. I'd assumed he was referring to the dead body wrapped in the blankets in front of me. At the airport, I was greeted by my family and then went to a music festival with my wife for the weekend. The night we returned home, I felt groggy, but nothing out of the ordinary for a post-music festival recovery. But a friend sent me an article with my flight number in it. And after some research, I found out that the woman I had been sitting next to had tested positive to coronavirus. And after a few trips to the hospital, I was tested. And the next day, boom, confirmed. Cameron was one of the first 40 people in Australia to test positive for coronavirus. Today, he's fine and free from symptoms. But of course, the spread of the virus is far from over each day. We are seeing numbers and casualties rise. And look, one of the temptations in all of this, in the midst of the crisis, as we lose control, is to spiral into frustration and blame. Uh, We've seen Trump casting blame on China. We've seen China blame the US. And here in Australia, we've seen some casting blame at our government and everyday Aussies fighting in supermarkets and forgetting who they are. But City on a Hill, you know who you are. And you know that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities of this evil and dark world. And what's more, you know the king, and not just any king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the king who wins over sickness, a king who wins over suffering, the king who has waged war against evil and is victorious over the serpent. What does that mean? It means that we should not get drawn into the ways of the devil. We cannot be drawn into the spiral of blame, judgment, and bitterness because you are not a son of the serpent. You're a son and daughter of a savior, of a savior. And a day is coming when he'll deal with the mess. A day where the righteousness of God will be poured out. A day where the serpent will be cast into the flames forever. And on that day, You'll not only see the end of Satan's tyranny, but we will make a toast to the death of death. Did you see that in verse 13? Have a look with me there. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death 
the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, years ago, I uh, saw the musical, The Lion King, amazing, amazing musical and movie. And uh, you'll know that the opening starts with that, uh, that, that song, The Circle of Life, and it's full of color and light. And, and you've got to ask yourself, well, what is the circle of life? Well, well, essentially, it's the story that we're all born, we grow up, eventually we die, and our body decays, but that's okay because it becomes fertilizer for another life that is born, grows up, dies, decays, and then is fertilizer, and it just goes on and on in this circle of life. And, 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 and when you're listening to this and watching this, it's all very natural and very normal, and we're singing it, and we're celebrating. It's a kuna matata, which means no worries. It's a happy, free philosophy, and we, we love it until, of course, the musical is over and you walk outside into the real world and you face the reality of sickness and the reality of suffering and indeed the reality of death. In the midst of that, what do we do? We, we grieve. We lament. We, like Jesus, weep. Why? Because death is not a normal part of life but an evil invasion on God's good design. I believe J.R. Tolkien was right when he said, there's no such thing as a natural death. All men must die, but for every man, his death is an accident. And even if he knows it, he would sense it an unjustifiable violation. City on a hill. This is what makes revelation and the gospel of Jesus good news. Because in Jesus, we see the warrior of heaven who doesn't just face death, but defeats death. Is this not why the early church could rejoice in their suffering? Is this not why they could lay down their own lives for the sake of others? Is this not why the apostle Paul could say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the victory of Jesus? Are you right now secure in the one who triumphs over the grave? This leads to a third and final point, the book of life. Look with me again to verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in these books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So John sees the throne of God. 
It's not an empty throne. It's not a throne that hangs in the balance. Now, this is Jesus' throne, the reigning, ruling, and returning king. And like a court of awe where evidence is brought before the, the judge, so we see in this vision all of these books and these turnings of pages as we each give an account for our life. And this includes our public behavior, our private behavior. This includes our public attitudes and indeed our private attitudes. As Jesus himself said, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now, what's curious to me about the scene in Revelation is that the last day mirrors the first day. When God created the world and spoke all things into existence, he separated light from darkness. Here on the last day, when the books are open and our lives are laid bare, God will speak once more and separate life from death. As John sees in verse 15, those whose names are not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus said as much throughout the Gospels, didn't he? In Matthew 25, Jesus warns them of a time when people will be separated into two groups, one entering into his eternal presence, the other banished to a place of eternal punishment that was prepared for the devil and his angels. In Luke 16, Jesus says this is a place of eternal torment. In Matthew 13, Jesus says it's where people gnash their teeth and there is no return. Peter Kreef says this, The images for hell in Scripture are horrible, but they're only symbols. The thing symbolized is not less horrible than the symbols, but more. Spiritual fire is worse than material fire. Spiritual death is worse than physical death. The pain of loss, the loss of God, who is the source of all joy, is infinitely more horrible than any torture could ever be. All who know God and His joy understand that. Saints do not need to be threatened with fire, only with loss. This loss, this eternal dying, is something that we each must weigh up right now. You know, we'd be a fool to read Revelation and not consider our own standing before the throne. It's worth asking yourself right now that if you were to face Jesus tonight, what, what would be said? What would be revealed? Where would you go? Now, these are sobering questions to ask, especially when we consider the great chasm that exists between our life and the righteousness of God. You know, I have an ideal of being a very loving husband and a very loving father, but I also know that I fall short, that when we open up these books, unfortunately and tragically, there will be stories of my own selfishness and stories of my own self-seeking. I have an ideal of being a very thoughtful and a very generous man, a very humble and very courageous man. And yet I know that under the pressures of life, when things are crumbling, I can become very self-centered and cling to the things of this world and considering those around me. And to be honest, I have an ideal of being completely sold out for God, and that I want to love Him with all that I have. And yet I know 
that when the books are open, there will be stories of dishonor. There will be stories of willful disobedience. I have no doubt that the Bible is telling the truth when it says there is no one who is righteous, not even one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And if that's true, and I'm convinced that it is, then who can be saved? Who can stand before the throne of God and escape the judgment that we all deserve? Well, do you see what John sees? Amidst the many books and this lake of fire, his eyes are drawn to another book. Did you see it? It's the book of life. What is the book of life? The book of life is, is like a guest list at the entry of a grand wedding that records the names of people who are going to be part of Christ's celebration. It records those who will sit at his table, those who will dance in his victory, those who will toast his grace and experience his glory forever. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news is not just that we've been rescued from sin, Satan, and death. It's that we've been invited into the very center of God's love and eternal life. But please listen very carefully. Being a really good person doesn't get your name in the book of life. In the same way that being a really bad person doesn't get your name out of the book. When it comes to the book of life, it's not about you. It's not about where you grew up or what family you were part of. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the host of this celebration. Jesus is the one who paid with his own blood the price so that we could sit at his table. Jesus is the one who expelled the evil one. And Jesus is the one who invites you in and gives us a place in the book of life. The question is not whether the invitation of Jesus has gone out. The question is, how will you respond? If you reject his invitation, then your name will not be in the book of life. You will not enter his eternal celebration, his eternal life. But if you say yes to Jesus... If you put your faith in Jesus right now, you will be secure in his glory and his grace. A few weeks ago, I was talking to uh, a bloke named Patrick. Patrick uh, and his wife Tamara attend City on a Hill, Melbourne. Uh, he has a doctorate in sociology and he's a research fellow at a major university. And, and growing up, his entire immediate family were atheists, uh, and they still are. His father would describe himself as a rabid atheist. He says, my beliefs were an odd mixture of hedonism and humanism. If ever asked if I believed in God, my reply was consistently the same. There is no such thing as God, and if there is, I want nothing to do with him, anything. It, want, I want nothing to do with anyone so cruel. Faith was, for me, antithetical to being rational and was also dismissed wholly and entirely as a useless vestige of childhood to which a handful still clung. My beliefs about the world were misanthropic. 
There was no God and faith was either a tool of manipulation or what remains of a human being after all their rational sensibilities have been extracted. How did Patrick end up at City on a Hill? He says, I was coerced into attending by Tamara, who insisted that if I wanted a relationship with her, then I would need to make peace with her relationship with God. I was also on the road to starting my PhD in sociology, so my curiosity played a part, and I had grown out of what I'd finally recognized to be the intellectual proclivities of a bigoted zealot. However, my attendance was not a symbolic gesture to me or even to Tamara, but instead felt like an expedition to go and watch something I felt I should understand. Patrick's first service was Christmas Eve uh, at Melbourne Town Hall. He writes in a note to me these words. I remember feeling amused from the start. The lights, the colour, the loud music, the packed halls. It struck me as an aesthetic tailored to attract a demographic. But the theory faded as the service changed tempo from start to finish. The sermon was not dogmatic lecture, but instead a series of perfectly reasonable observations, some of which would dovetail into sound arguments that defended or validated equally reasonable aspects of the Bible. That made me feel confused, but also intrigued. Part of me wanted to argue against the preacher, that is you, over some trivial detail and a reference to a founding sociologist, but the rest of me did not. Why would I want to discourage reference to the classics deployed in argument? What was Weber's iron cage doing in a Christmas service? Where was the dogma, the irrational masses, and why wasn't I angry? My first impressions of City on a Hill were, in short, overwhelming, confusing, intriguing, and encouraging. When Tamara and I left, she asked me how I felt about the whole experience, and I was honest with her. I told her I felt oddly calm, and that if I would ever go to church on purpose, it would be this one. Patrick and his wife came again to City on a Hill uh, the following Easter. And a lot had uh, happened between them. Uh, Patrick had found himself adrift in life uh, with with deep longings for, for something more. This is what he says. In stark contrast to the challenges of the week, Sunday was an opportunity to hear about how the world could be seen through a different lens, how I might have been wrong, how Jesus could mean so much more than I had ever imagined possible, that even a wretch like me could be saved, that even amidst of war, of all against all, there might still be a beacon of hope. My view of Jesus has been almost almost completely turned upside down from an empty symbol to a divine vessel of unfathomable grace. I don't know what lies ahead for me, but I can at least now hold on to one constant that is immutable, God. In November last year, Patrick, along with many others across our church, was baptized. Incredible. Incredible. Isn't that an inspiring story? Isn't that a great reminder to us all of the beauty, the truth, and the relevance of Jesus? Do you know that all around the world, people are putting their hope in Jesus? Jesus is is writing their names in the book of life. If that is you, if you are right now standing secure in the life of Jesus, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice knowing that there is nothing that can take that away. No angel, no demon, no sickness, no disease, 
No death. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so while the world might be running in fear, let me encourage you to live in faith. While we might see some acting in greed, let's be a people marked by generosity. While we might see some panicking, let's extend a hand of peace. And while our world acts in despair, let's look to Jesus and live in hope. And if you are with us today, and perhaps you are unsure of where you stand, unsure whether your eternity is and whether your name is in the book of life, then please, please don't log off without saying yes to the invitation of Christ. Jesus knows you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus loves you. And right now, right now, he is inviting you to say yes to him. Yes to his forgiveness. Yes to his love. Yes to his eternal life. If you'd like to say yes to Jesus today, then don't delay. Let us know by indicating in the comments below. Uh, you might even, as I'm speaking, just write the word yes, because we would love to, to connect with you. We'd love to support you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you on this journey together. In a moment, the band is going to lead us in song. But why don't we all stand where we are and go to our King in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We are thankful for his life for His death, for His resurrection. We thank You that He's the reigning, ruling, rescuing, and returning King. Lord, give us eyes to see and hearts to respond. May we be men and women of the gospel. May we be people who cling to You, who walk in faith, who walk in hope, who know and declare Your love. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said with one super loud voice, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.